Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Luke. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As much as what we're going to look at this morning is a little bit about that of the announcement of John the Baptist, I think about it, This, these verses really deal with who Zacharias is and who God is to Zacharias. And so we're going to look at this morning about Zacharias and apply some things to our own life this morning about Zacharias and hopefully walk away that we don't really come to the place of being like Zacharias toward the end of these verses that we're going to look at. Beginning in verse 5, we read, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord." Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we can have together as we look into your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our understanding this morning, that we take what we see this morning and hear this morning and apply it to our own lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we look here, we see that uh, Luke starts out, verse 5, with kind of helping Theophilus understand who and what time it was of year who was reigning at that time we read there that herod was the king of judea he gives us four certain characters just in these verses and we'll find out later that there's a fourth character that will play we see three in this first verse first verse here we see herod we see zacharias who was a priest and then we see his wife elizabeth who was the daughters of aaron later on we'll read about gabriel the angel who also play a major factor in this. As we look at this, I want us to look first of all at the character of Zacharias. In verse 6 and 7, and they were both righteous before God. That is a good character to have that he was found righteous, not just him, but also his wife Elizabeth as well. They were found righteous before God, and that's a good thing to have. We need to look at our lives and let me tell you something, our our lives should measure up to Christ's righteousness in us and not our own righteousness. The righteousness that these two individuals had was not their righteousness, but God's righteousness in them. And when we read about this, that was a good character to have. He was not like, if you would, the other priests that would go into the temple. A lot of those priests were not as righteous as they set out to be or proclaimed to be. But God says that Zacharias and his wife were both righteous before God. It just wasn't something that Zacharias was saying about himself. It wasn't anything that Luke was saying about Zacharias. God is saying this to Luke to write this down, that Zacharias and his wife both were righteous before God. Not only that, but let's read further. Walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. Secondly, we find not only were they righteous, but they obeyed God's commandments. 
They followed God and they were found, thirdly, blameless. There was no fault, if you would, that in, no one around them could say, well, those are unrighteous people. They are holy before God. They're righteous. They follow. Notice what it says. Not only these commandments and the ordinances. Zacharias did not shirk his priestly duties. He stuck to it. He obeyed the order that it fell for him to go into the temple and offer up this incense. He didn't say to the people, hey, can you do this time? I'm not filling up to it. No, he kept to the order of what his course was. I'm not going to take the time to take you to what the course was over in the book of Exodus about what his order was and how it fell into place, who was supposed to go in at what time. That's a big study by itself to find out what their course was. But he was found blameless. It wasn't because he was a goody two-shoe. It wasn't because he was morally conscious of things going on. It's because he obeyed God and followed God's standard. Therefore, he was found blameless. First Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 said, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse, perverse generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We should take into account that each child of God should be found blameless in this world in which we live today. No one should be able to come back and say of the members of Marshall Baptist Church that there's fault with us in the world in which we live. That nobody can say, well, you, have, you lead a double life. You do this, but then you do this. We should be found blameless in our town and communities that we live in. The jobs that we have, even in our own family life, we should be found blameless, one with another, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, we should be found blameless. Notice in that verse of Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, he says, harmless. You know what that means? No fighting. No bickering. No backbiting. No, no talking behind each other's backs. No making fun of one another, if you would. No coming up and saying, did you hear what Brother Waters did the other day? None of that stuff. We're to be harmless. Therefore, we'll be found blameless. <clears throat> Notice what it says. If we cannot, because God puts things in here for us to understand why he wants us to be blameless. Notice what the last part of that verse says. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Jesus Christ even says over in the book of Matthew that we are the light of the world. And if we're going to shine forth as lights of the world, we need to be found blameless. Blameless. Colossians 1 and verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You know what the biggest thing that we need to look forward to is that when we stand before God, we will not be reproved. Think about it. I do not like reproof. I don't like rebuke. 
not from people here on this earth, and especially not from the Father above. But there are times that I have felt reproof. I have had rebuke, not only from other people, but also from the Lord. Getting on my case, reproving me and saying, you ought not to do that, or you should be doing this more. You know, just keeps coming after me. But the Lord wants to, Jesus Christ wants to present us to the Father, unblameable and unreprovable. He wants to, you know, when you read about it, you know, there, God was looking for someone to stand in the gap. Jesus stands in that gap for us. You know how He find, how God finds us unreprovable? The Lord Jesus Christ stands and says, wait a minute. <laughs> They've got the blood. They're covered by the blood of Christ. They're covered by the blood of me. I've taken away all their sins. They are unblameable. They are unreprovable. See, when God looks at us, he views us through the blood of his dear son. As much as we look at ourselves and say, you know what, I'm not perfect. God says, you are perfect because of my son and what he did on the cross. And because you've received that gift and all I see is the blood of Christ applied to your life, I see you as perfect. That's why in the book of Ephesians, it says that he already sees us seated in heavenly places. It's not because of who we are. It's because of who he is. And because of the blood of Christ covering every aspect of our life, God sees that and says, you are already here with me. That's how he views it. That should be exciting. That should get our blood pumping a little bit. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Unblameable in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 Unblameable in holiness before God. God himself tells us that be ye holy, for I am holy. You say, well, it's hard to be holy. He gave you his holiness. It shouldn't be that difficult. Correct? It shouldn't be. But we make it more difficult than what it actually is. He gave us everything that we need to live a holy life. Everything. He didn't leave anything out. He's like, well, I'm going to give you a partial salvation. You're going to have to figure the rest of it out for yourself. No, that's not God. He doesn't want us to come back with an excuse of why we didn't. He gives us everything we need to be holy. So we find that he was blameless. He was righteous before God. He walked in the commandments. He walked in ordinances. You would think that they'd be blessed. Right? I mean, that's... Our thought process, man, they're a blessed couple. God has really blessed them. They're taken care of. But notice what verse 7 says, and they had no child. Because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. Huh. You would think God would have blessed them with multitude of children, done all those things because of their obeying the commandments and following the ordinances. But B, she was barren. They had no children. And now God is here telling us, and they're well now stricken in years. 
they're past having children. They're past it. You say, well, why is he letting us know that? Because God's just letting us know that he can do anything. But you know what it's also telling us? Although they had no children, both were still faithful. They weren't faithful to God expecting him to give them a child. They were faithful simply because they loved God. That was it. They they were not looking at the temporal reward of a child or anything of those types of blessings from the Lord. They were laying up treasures, if you would, in heaven. But yet they were still barren. No child, no one, if you would, to carry on the family name. Look at verse 8. We see, secondly, then the course of Zacharias. We've seen his character, but let's look at the course. His course was to burn incense. Look at verse 8. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. God is a God of order. He wants everything just so. When you read about the sacrifices and you read how the tabernacle was to be built, how they were supposed to set it up, how they were supposed to take it down, who was to carry what, it was order. God didn't want them to go on, well, who's going to carry the ark? Who's going to tear down this? Who's going to do this? What group is going to do it? Are the Reubenites going to do it? Are the Issachar, you know, who's going to do it? And God said, here's the order of it. The Levites are the only one to touch the tabernacle stuff. And the Kohathites were the ones that took care of the Ark of the Covenant and the furnishings of the tabernacle. The other two brothers were not supposed to touch it. They had their order of things to do. There is order in the church. God has set some pastors and teachers you say, well, that's order. <clears throat> he wants things to run just so. He doesn't want chaos in his churches. He doesn't want people coming in. Well, what are we going to do next? That's why I try to have my announcements written out. So therefore we know what's going on. The order of songs got a little jumbled this morning because I thought I wrote them down Wednesday. I try to be ahead of that. But I wrote them down in my black book and forgot to transfer them information over. That is okay. Those happen. But still, there was an order in my black book. God is a God of order. He is not one to cause confusion in his children. He doesn't say one thing and flip over and say something else to cause confusion for his saints. If he says one thing, he means it and will fulfill it. When he promised to give us salvation, when we cried out to him for it, he said, wait a minute, you first have to do a couple of these things. You have to first get rid of your sins and then I'll save you. Wait a minute, you said that the Bible says, these are your very words that you said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If God says it, he'll perform it. He's not one to come back and say, well, I'm going to hold back that or what. When he says he's going to promise, he promised you a home in heaven, did he not? Is he then going to fulfill that promise when we get there? He sure will, but the promise is already fulfilled in his eyes because it's already ready for us. He is a God of order. And because he's a God of order, 
not only does he want his church to be in order, he wants the families that are in that church to be in order. Elizabeth and Zacharias, their home was in order. When you think about it, they were very dutiful in their course. They were very dutiful as husband and wife. There was an order of things. We've tipsy-turvied everything in our society today that nobody knows who's the boss. Remember that 80s show, Who's the Boss? Well, guess who the boss is? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head. And let me tell you something. The pastor of Marshall Baptist Church is not the head. Jesus Christ is the head of Marshall Baptist Church. That's it. He's it. All we are are sheep. We are his flock. He has given me the privilege and the calling to pastor. But I answer to him. I must follow his leadership. And then, therefore, when I follow his leadership, it will be in order. It will be in order. Exodus 20, 37, verse 25 and he made this incense altar of shittim wood. The length of it was a cubit, and the breadth of it a cubit. It was four square, and the two cubits was the height of, the, of it. The horns thereof were of the same. And he overlaid it with pure gold, both top of it and the sides thereof round about, and the horns of it. Also he made unto it a crown of gold round about. And he made two rings of gold for it under the crown thereof, by the two corners of it upon the two sides thereof, to be places for the staves to bear it withal. And he made the staves of shittim wood and overlaid them with gold. And he made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the apothecary. So I'm I'm just giving you an indication, kind of giving you a description of what his office was and what he was doing. He was not one to go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. That was not his course. That was not his obligation. That was not what the course of Abiah did. The course of Abiah offered incense on the altar before going into the Holy of Holies. That's what he did. And he offered sweet incense after the making of the apothecary. Sweet spices. God wants us, his children, to be a sweet-smelling savor unto him. He doesn't want us to be rotten. Yeah, You know, whenever my wife has made that um, cranberry um, cider, you know, that everybody loves... When it's cooking on the stove, the spices are nice. Spills the house, the aroma, sweet spices. That's Lord how that's how the Lord wants us to smell to Him. You ever smelled rotten fish or rotten eggs or something like that? You opened up your fridge and it just just permeates the whole fridge, and you have to clean out the whole fridge because some of the other food in it has gotten tainted with the smell of it. He doesn't want us smelling like that. He wants us to be a sweet-smelling savor. Notice in verse 9, according to the custom of his office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. So when he would go in and offer up this incense and pray, the multitude on the outside will be praying a certain prayer 
that was for documented for them to pray while he was inside. You know, they had a, you think about it, the, the, the Psalms, they had the Song of Degrees. And in the temple, when they started to go up to the up the stairs, they were supposed to stop at a certain step and sing a psalm. Sing a psalm. Go up some more. Sing a psalm. I mean, that's just the way they did it. It was orderly. It was decent. You know, everything that we do for the Lord in this church should be decently and in order. But not only that, in our private lives, it should be decently and in order. Now, there are days that you have your things set. This is when we're going to go here. This is what we're going to do then. This is what we're going to do here. And something happens where a big old wrench comes flying in from left side and it throws the whole day out of whack. That's what happened to us yesterday. You know, we, we got, we ordered our groceries online, went to go get them picked up. And the place that we went to go pick them up, they were behind because two of the shoppers didn't show up. So we, they said, we're about an hour behind. You know what? That throws, you know, kind of threw a kink into everything. But it's like, you know, let's run over to this store real quick and see if we can find something. So you just kind of, you know, you, you kind of adapt. Got to have some flexibility sometimes. Did we find what we were looking for at the store? No. But then we're in there, we come out, and she's like, hey, they're shopping for our food, our groceries. All right. And it didn't take but 30 minutes. But there are sometimes, you know, people can get frustrated. I get frustrated sometimes. I'm human. My wife's like, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's human. We can get frustrated over even small things. Because let me tell you, it's a small thing. But even we can get frustrated over the small details. Over the small things. And the Lord's like, I've got it under control. Maybe perhaps it was late because there was a car that went in the ditch down the road that we had been taken. And he protected us from being that car. Sometimes we just, we don't think about things until we're already past everything. You know, maybe the Lord was just keeping us from this. Simply because of this. It was the custom for them to pray outside while the priests went in to offer up incense on that altar. In verse 11, we read then further, And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. We see the communication of Gabriel. The communication of Gabriel. He's doing his thing. He's doing his normal thing. Routine. That's what he's doing. It was his course. He goes up to the temple. He goes in to pray and offer up the incense. He's not expecting an angel to show up. Right? I mean, he. <laughs> there hadn't been anyone showing up for a, nothing had happened for over 400 years. So he's going in, doing his normal routine. He does. He, when he finishes his course, he gets to go home. He gets to go back to his dwelling place but he's not he's going in there he walks in he starts off right up and all of a sudden on the right hand side an angel appears this hasn't happened before you know I, I, every single time that i've had my course you know you got to think about what might have been going through zacharias's mind every single time i've come in here to offer up incense 
There's never been an angel that has shown up. Angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. That would scare me too. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. You know, he wasn't expecting the angel to say that. Maybe he was saying, thinking maybe the angel's going to say, You're doing a great job. You know, you're doing a good job at your course, Zacharias. No. He says, Your prayers have been heard. Well, let me tell you something. Because of Zacharias and Elizabeth's faithfulness, I'm pretty sure that they've been praying for a son. Because obviously the angel wouldn't have said, thy prayers have been heard. Obviously they've been praying for a child. And he says, your prayers have been heard. God had seen their faithfulness. And in their good, ripe old age, well stricken in years, passed beyond the point of childbearing, they gave, the angel Gabriel says, thy prayers have been heard. And he doesn't stop there. Because he says, thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. I mean, he just flat out tells him what's going to happen. He doesn't leave a, He doesn't hold back. He says, your prayer's been heard. What prayers, Gabriel? We've been praying a lot. <laughs> Could have been about a lot of different things. But he says, your prayer's been heard. Elizabeth is going to bear you a son, and you're going to call his name John. Well, Halix, he must have been dumbfounded. He didn't know what to say. He's speechless. But notice what, what takes place here. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. You think about this, Gabriel's telling him, this is who your son is going to be. You're not really going to be, if you would, given the choice on this. This is what God's foreordained pattern and plan for your son's life is going to be. He's not going to, you know, because you think about it, back then, Jewish custom, Zacharias has a son. Guess what that son's going to be? He's going to follow the course of Abiah. And he's going to learn to be a priest and go in and offer up incense just like Zacharias. But that's not the case here. That is not the case. He says, yes, you're going to rejoice. You're going to have gladness. And many other people are going to rejoice at his coming. But notice what verse 15 says. He's going to have the Nazarite vow placed upon him. Now, folks... Contrary to popular demand and comment, contrary to popular belief, Jesus Christ did not have the Nazarite vow placed upon him. He did not. But John did. So did Samuel. So did Samson. But this vow is placed upon him because God is going to use John in a miraculous and special way. And he wanted John to be so set apart that he would stand out. Elijah also had the Nazarite vow placed upon him. Jesus was a Nazarene, but it doesn't mean he was a Nazarite. A Nazarene was somebody that lived and was from the town of Nazareth. 
Notice what verse 16 says, and many of the children of Israel shall be shall he turn to the Lord their God. Now, God, the angel Gabriel is telling Zacharias what John's purpose is going to be. Notice what the purpose is, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. What was his proclamation when John was in the desert. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was his message. And then when Jesus Christ showed up, what did he do? Notice it says that he is going to turn to, he shall turn to the Lord. He'll, and many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. When Jesus Christ showed up to be baptized of John, what did John say? He didn't say, look at me as this man's coming here to be baptized of me. Did he say that? That was not his response. He said, behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. You know what he was doing? He was making people turn to look at Jesus Christ coming down the road. And that was his mission, to turn people to the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't his mission to draw people to him. It was to turn people and point to the Savior of the world. John, even in his testimony, when you when Jesus Christ does come down to the Jordan River, he says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I should be baptized of you. And Jesus is like, no, suffer it now to be so. And we shall fulfill all righteousness. What does he do? And he suffered him and John baptized him. Nowhere in Scripture, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I find nowhere where John the Baptist ever was baptized. I don't find it. I've looked, but I don't see it. Jesus did not turn around after he got baptized and baptized John the Baptist. Didn't do it. John baptized a lot of people. He baptized mostly all the apostles. The disciples of Christ, those that wound up being the first church, John baptized them. Notice then in verse 17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Man, that is an awesome responsibility, but also a humbling responsibility that he this is going to be placed on him this is going to be his purpose and sole purpose in life it was not going john you do not read him this was john's purpose he was going to prepare the hearts of people that when jesus christ showed up on the scene that they would know that that was the messiah that there would be no question that that john the baptist had preached so much about the Lord Jesus Christ and what to look for when he showed up. That when Jesus showed up, he said, that's him. That is who he is. That's who I've been preaching about for the last six months. Basically, or however long he was out there in the desert preaching. Because it wasn't about John. I don't, let me tell you something. Zacharias just hearing that his prayers have been answered probably was super excited. That he was going to have a son. But we fall into the same trap that he fell into. Notice verse 18. 
And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife will stricken in years. He's not dumb. He's looking at his age. He's looking at Elizabeth's age. You know, he's like, how, how am I going to know this? Do you see how old I am? Do you know how old Elizabeth is? We're well past having kids. Well past it. He says, how am I going to know this? You know, he makes an excuse. I'm too old. I don't care how old we get. If we have surrendered our lives to Christ, he will use us Amen. in any way he sees fit. He may change ministry. He may change how we serve, but we're still going to serve. He makes an excuse, just like Moses made an excuse, just like many others throughout the Old Testament made excuses, just like some made excuses in the New Testament. You know, a lot of we still make excuses today. Well, Lord, I'm not that strong. Lord, I'm not that smart. Lord, he's taking the foolishness of preaching to confound the wise. He's taken the weak and made them strong. He's taken the poor and made them rich. We do not have an excuse of why we can't serve God the way he wants us to serve him. You say, well, I don't know where to serve. Come and ask me. Call me. Put it on a card. <laughs> Say, how can I better serve the Lord in this church? And I will give you Bible to show you how you can. You can ask even the most mundane, simple question like that, and I'll answer it according to the Word of God. But all the questions I've been asked so far have been... Ask a simple one. <laughs> there was a consequence for Zacharias. There was a consequence. Verse 19, we read, And the angel answering said to him, <clears throat> I am Gabriel. I like how Gabriel sets himself up. Because he's, you know why he's going to say what he's going to say? He says, I have the authority from God to tell you this message. Notice what he says. He says, And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God. Beat that. That's kind of how it comes up. I stand in the presence of God. Then he goes further and he says, And am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. You know, he's standing there and God says, Go tell Zacharias. You know what Gabriel did? Shows up right there by the altar of incense and says, Hi, hey Zacharias. I've got a message from God for you. That's how it is. And he's trying to proclaim that he is not there just because. He says, I have stood in the presence of God. and I, He's the one that sent me to tell you this. This isn't just me coming here and trying to say... I'm giving you a good message from me. You're going to have a son. No, that's coming straight from God because I was in his presence when he told me. That should have been enough, right? That should have been the solidifying thing for Zachariah to say, okay, gotcha. I believe. Nope. 
Notice what he says. This is Gabriel. He says, you know, because he asked those questions. You know why he asked those questions? Unbelief. Notice what Gabriel says. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be filled in their season. You know what he's saying to Zechariah? It's not going to happen right now. But in their season, your wife will give birth. But he says, because of your unbelief, I'm striking you dumb. Until all this time has been fulfilled of her giving birth. And then we're going to find out later what has to happen for him to actually speak again. It's a consequence of unbelief. He's struck dumb. He's left, if you would, speechless. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. You know, it, was only, it wasn't supposed to take this long for him just to go in and offer up the incense and come back out. But he's taken a long time. You know, it was taking longer than the 30 minutes. Right? It's taking a little bit longer than that 30 minutes that we're so used to. He's hitting the 36-minute mark, getting kind of antsy. Maybe he went one minute over. 31 minutes and 49 seconds. Come on, Zacharias. You've been in there for a while. Let me tell you something. It should be okay that when God's speaking to us, that we tarry a little bit longer. And not shortchange God. Because maybe he's trying to give us something. Perhaps he's trying to tell us something so radically important to our lives as believers that it's going to be life-changing for us. And all of a sudden we look down and go, man, the game's about to start. Got to go. Sorry, God. And he was about to tell you that he just wanted to say, I love you. And we decide that something else is more important than for him to say, I love you. You say, well, that's not really life-changing. God saying he loves me, that's life-changing. You say, well, that's so simple. Yeah, but it's so fulfilling that he loves me. Too many times we tend to get impatient with God. How much do you think he's been impatient with us? But he is a long-suffering God. You Think about his position as the Heavenly Father, as the creator of all things, to look down on his creation, to watch as how they use his name in vain, how they do not obey his commandments, how they play God themselves, how his children... His true believers do not have enough faith in certain areas of their life. How they do not trust him with the big things, but they're okay with the small things. They can trust him with those. But the bigger things they have a real problem with. How disappointing it must be for him at times. How frustrating he may get over watching us make the same mistake over and over and over again. 
And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. See, he just didn't get to go home. He had to stick it out. No telling how long his course ran. But maybe he had to go in the next day and offer up incense again. But this time he couldn't pray aloud like he did before. He was speechless. And he had to stay to finish the course and then he could go home. What a, what a, can you imagine being struck dumb because of unbelief, but you still had to go in and finish your course and you still had to go in and pray and offer up the sweet smelling incense to the Lord without being able to verbally voice your praise to God and your prayers to God. He couldn't do it. He had to finish his ministration. Sometimes God does things in our lives to get our attention, to cause something drastic to happen in our lives. He says, but don't stop ministering. Keep going on. Don't stop. A lot of people will say, I'm done. I quit. Zachariah's going to say, I can't talk. I can't speak. I can't, I can't go before the Lord and offer up this incense the way I want to. I'm done. I'm cutting my ministration short. I'm going home. Despite him being struck dumb because of a simple moment, a simple moment in time where his unbelief crept in to where he couldn't believe God for this promise, yet he still remained faithful to minister to God. Happens to us. We, although there may be a moment of doubt or a moment of unbelief, we still must remain faithful in the purpose and plan God has laid out for our individual lives. We can't shirk it. We can't stop it because it's just not going the way we want it to go. It's not fitting into the mold that we're used to. We've changed our services. Guess what? We can. You see, we're having services. It may be one service and a lunch, but we can do that because we can. We are flexible enough to where we can say, Lord, we don't want to cancel being in your house, but we still want to be faithful. No matter what is thrown in our path, we're still going to be faithful. And whoever shows up, shows up, but we're going to remain faithful. The people watching what took place, you know, it was a testimony even for Zacharias. As much as he was stuck drunk, struck dumb, he couldn't explain to them what happened. But he still went in the next day to finish his ministration. And they got to see that testimony of his faithfulness to God to keep going until his time was done. We'll close with this. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take my reproach among men. With God, all things are possible. God kept his promise, did he not? He kept his promise. Your wife's going to have a son and you're going to name him John. 
And when Elizabeth, I'm pretty sure, let me tell you something. When she conceived and found out she was pregnant, she goes, okay. I don't know the conversation between Zacharias and Elizabeth. The Bible doesn't give us any indication that Zacharias went and said, you know, because they wrote backwards. Hebrew was backwards. So he's chiseling out on, on whatever, clay tablet. You'll never guess what happened today. This angel, Gabriel, from God, showed up and said, we're going to have a kid. We're going to have a son. And his name's going to be John. You know, I don't know if they had that conversation at all. The Bible doesn't tell us. But she conceived, and the Bible says she hid herself for five months. You know, I think she hid herself because she's like, this is not even possible. I know I'm not eating that much. Think about it. But she comes back, and notice what she says at the end. She says... Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. She's like, he is... Because for for a woman in that custom, in that time period, to not have a son was reproachful. That God was not blessing that home the way that they saw that it needed to be blessed. And so because they had no son, as much as they were faithful to God, I'm pretty sure the rest of the town were talking. It reminds me of Abraham and Sarah in their old age. You know, it doesn't change the same old thoughts. Did not Abraham say, I'm old. Have you seen Sarah, how old she is? Same response that Zacharias has here to Gabriel. I'm old. She's old. This ain't possible. Let me tell you something. We'll close with this conclusion. When the Lord speaks to us through his word, should we not clearly believe the word and then obey it to the utmost? Otherwise, we could be struck dumb for our unbelief. Think about it. We could have that same thought, same attitude toward God, and God's like, fine. I have heard of countless stories of individuals. I remember a story, and we'll close with this little illustration. This family went to the mission field, and they went to a a place where there were poisonous snakes. Poisonous. And because of the wife's unbelief of her, her not trusting God, that God would protect her children from the snakes. Eventually, she was so hard on her husband, they left the field. They came back to the States within six months, I believe. From what I can remember, all three kids were dead from snake bites. Unbelief. You say, well, that's harsh. God can strike people dumb, but also God can do other things to really get their attention for their unbelief. He really can. We need to be careful that when God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. But it will be in his time and according to his plan and never according to our plan. Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning.